This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. As you know, we've been doing a study of the end times, and I've started with these slides every time we've gotten together, because the major question that we have is what next, or what is the next event on God's calendar? And we've kind of kind of jumped around a little bit on heaven and on earth to see what's going to happen next. We talked about the rapture, which of course can happen at any time. Um, There's no events that have to take place prior to that. Then there's the judgment seat of Christ, and that happens of course up in heaven where we are basically judged not for our sins, but we're judged and rewarded or not rewarded for our faithfulness. And if you really understood that, if we really If God really got hold of us regarding that, it is the report card time. It is the time where we get the grade on the final. It is the time where we determine, you know, whether what our GPA is and whether we're going to be valedictorian or whether we're just going to be one of those other Rand kind of people. And it should motivate us to live passionately for Him. Then, of course, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, or the marriage ceremony of the Lamb, which is the reward for that, because it's given to those who are the overcomers, those that have, have received reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone's invited to the marriage supper, which happens later, but not the marriage ceremony. It's, it's a special, honored time. Then we started talking about the events that take place on earth, and we've talked about the tribulation period, and we jumped back a little bit to look at some of the events that may precede the tribulation, and we talked a little bit about the Gog and Magog war on Tuesday, which may or may not. And, but most important, the events that precede the tribulation is basically God's report card on His church. The book of Revelation begins with that, to, to basically let His church through all the church age know how he views it, how he's doing. In other words, it's something personal. It's God's report card to me and it's God's report card to you because we're the ones that make up the church. It's not a corporate thing. It's not a, you know, it's not an LLC. It's not a 5013C. It's an individual that comes together and makes up a, a church, which is a, a, an assembly of called out ones that have been literally called out of the world. Now, I want to go ahead and share this with you before I begin. I know you've had these in your own life, but I've had a couple of life-changing events that have taken place for me in Scripture that changed everything. I mean, it just changed everything. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church because that's just what you did when I was growing up. And I went to Southern Baptist seminaries because that's just what you did if you were raised in a Southern Baptist church. I, I... you know, begin pastoring Southern Baptist churches because that's what you do when you get a degree from a seminary in a Southern Baptist church. And, and, and being here in the Bible Belt, there's, at least when I was younger, there were more of them than any other kind of churches. Now there's the, you know, the no-name churches, but that's a totally different story. 
And, uh, and as, as, I'm, as you're going through the ministry, as you're studying and you're ministering and you're counseling and you're preaching and, you know, you kind of have this mindset of how you've been raised, what you understand, what you were taught in school. And you never really kind of reach out beyond that because you filter scripture through your, your own personal hermeneutic. And then all of a sudden, God arrests you. He, he comes in there and he captures you and he says, do you realize that the confines of what you have put me in based on how you grew up or what somebody taught you aren't what I'm like at all. Man, I, I may be different than you can possibly even imagine. And you have these life-changing events. The first one for me was understanding God's sovereignty. And I, he'd been showing me this for years. I, I really I was having a hard time grasping with it because I was still in the, make, I will make Christ the Lord of my life I will choose to follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided not to follow Jesus. So it's basically all based on me and my faithfulness. And, and this happened, it, it crystallized when I was Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. I was reading um, a book by John Piper. Um, and I was sitting in McDonald's actually when it happened. And all of a sudden, these blinders came off. And all of a sudden, God took this verse. And I've shared this with you before. He took this verse amidst all the others I was studying. And that was the one that zoomed in like Vic was talking today about God speaking to you. That's, that's the one he just, just, just shot me right in the chest. Now, what happens is, you know, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to the Jews. And the Jews are basically repudiating the gospel. And they're basically saying, you know, we don't believe in that. And we're not interested. And so as, as Paul's preaching the gospel, he says, fine, if that's the way you are, then I will now turn to the Gentiles. And he started preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel proclamation, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Got that. That's what People do when they're saved or are Gentiles being included in, you know, something only for the Jews. I got that. And then the Holy Spirit reveals this to us. And he said, as many as had been, note the order, one, appointed to eternal life. That's a pre-existing act. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And right then those blinders came off. Wait a second. It should say the other way around. It should say as many of those believed obviously were appointed to eternal life. And I know they were appointed because they believed. That's their action. But the Holy Spirit reverses it and goes, no, the only reason why they believed is because they were appointed first. Wait a second. Well, well what about my choice? Well, Steve, why don't you show me in Scripture um, prior to your salvation what choice you have. Okay, and I look, and I look in Romans, and it says that there's none that seeks after God, no, not one. That includes you, Steve. But I am seeking after God. So is my word wrong? No. Then I must have given you something that made you want to seek after me. Okay, well, well, how about, how about my choice? How about what I want to do? Okay, well, like in the Old Testament, like... Uh, like the choice, it was God's choice for Israel. It was God's choice for the tribe of Israel that would be his priest. It was God's choice for the tribe that the Messiah would come through. It was God's choice on how the temple was going to be built. 20 chapters to let us know exactly how the temple is going to be built. It was God's choice on the garments that the priests wear. It was God's choice on the stones, and we don't even know what they mean today, that are on the high priest Ephron. It was God's choice on the fest festivals. It was God's choice on the feast. It was God's choice how sin got atoned for. It was God's choice in everything, everything. 
Wow. So where does my free will come in? Well, your free will comes in after Christ comes in and changes you. Salvation is all of God, but once you now belong to God, you glorify Him by walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And then all the verses that deal with my choice, all of them have to do with sanctification. You lay your body down as a living sacrifice. You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh. You can't do that prior to salvation. And then, and then my life verse just jumped up out of nowhere, never saw it before. But our God is in heaven, in his heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. Golly. Yes, he does. He raises up some and he brings down some. He heals miraculously and he lets people die of disease. He brings, allows persecution to take place and then he delivers from that. He, he does whatever he wants. Because he is God. So what do I do? Do I pray to change his mind? God forbid. I pray so that my mind will line up with his mind. That's what Christ did in the garden. (laughs) Nevertheless, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. It's not possible, Jesus. You know it's not possible. You're just anguishing because of what you're about to face. My wrath being poured out on you. Nevertheless, God, not my will, but your will be done because you're in your heavens and you do what you please. It's a life-changing event. Changed everything. Gave me peace and security. Something terrible happens. I understand God can change it anytime he wants, but if he chooses not to, There has to be some reason, and his reasons are always for my betterment. When you face trials and tribulations, when you're tested and you persevere under that, you are blessed because it teaches me to to be more like Christ. When I suffer, I'm able to relate to the suffering of Christ. And so all the terrible things that the church teaches today are not part of the kingdom of God. You should never have anything bad happen to you. You shouldn't have any money problems. You should have really nice cars and and big houses because all God wants to do is bless you with stuff. Really preaches well in Haiti. Um, The fact of the matter is that none of that is true. God does what he wants. God's in his heavens and he does what he pleases. Ah, got that. Life-changing event. I had another one when I realized that the Holy Spirit was just like Jesus. It blew me away. I didn't know who the Holy Spirit was. I mean, I I knew about him doctrinally, and I knew about him theologically, and and I knew about him some on a personal level, but he was always wispy, and he was always kind of weird and strange, and he came and went where he wanted, and I couldn't get a mental picture of him. I mean, I've I've got God the Father, Sistine Chapel, or Mount Sinai, and lightning. I got that, okay? And I'm, okay. Jesus Perfect. I got a great picture of Jesus. I'd love to hang with Jesus. You know, I could relate to Jesus. I, I, I got that as a man. Holy Spirit? I mean, what mental picture do you come up with when you think of him? Like with smoke? I had a hard time getting, I don't, I don't understand that. Jesus, I understand. I got his personality and I see that. God the Father, I understand his personality because, you know, Jesus talks about him all the time. What about the personality of the Holy Spirit? And it's the Holy Spirit who's been left. It's not Jesus who lives in me. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in me. How am I supposed to relate to that part of the Godhead who lives in me when I don't even know what his personality is like? I don't know what he thinks. I don't know. 
How am I supposed to relate to that? I struggled with this for years. And then all of a sudden, John 14 just opened up. One word. I know I've, I shared this with you over and over again because I want you to get this. One word changed everything. And I, this is Jesus talking, will pray to the Father, and He, the Father, will give you another helper. Now, in the beginning of this chapter, Philip says, if you'll show us the Father, that will be enough for us. And Jesus chastises Philip and says, how can you say that? How can you say, show us the Father, and that'll be sufficient, like I'm not? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. So what's the Father like? He's like Jesus. What's Jesus like? He's like the Father. But who is this Holy Spirit guy? And all of a sudden, he says that I will pray to the Father and the Father will send you another helper, another paraclete, another comforter, another one that comes alongside. And the word other, allos, and you know this, means another of the same kind, another identical to what you already have. Jesus says, I will send you me, me. I will send you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Well, who is this helper? It's the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Only you can. Why can't it receive it? Because it neither sees him nor gnoscos him, knows him intimately, passionately, knows him experientially. The world doesn't know that about the Holy Spirit. They may know him theologically and doctrinally, but only you know him personally. But you gnosko him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then Jesus goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. When? At the second coming of Christ? No, at Pentecost. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. What is God like? He's like the son. What is the son like? He's, like? he's like the father. What is the spirit like? The Spirit is like the Son, who happens to be like the Father. So the Spirit is like the Father. It's the whole concept of the Trinity. They're all one, but revealed to us in three persons. It's a life-changing event for me when it came to the Holy Spirit. And then it moved on to the whole issue of spiritual gifts. Now, what are the purpose of those? I've been to charismatic churches, and it just seems like some sort of feeding frenzy, you know, or, or kind of... Is that right? Is that wrong? Is that real? Is that not? Then I go to some churches which absolutely diametrically deny they even exist today. Well, that's not true. What is it? And then all of a sudden, the First Corinthians passage opens up. When you begin to understand who the Holy Spirit is, now you understand about His gifts. Here's the word, manifestation. Prior to this, it says there's, you know, there's different kind of gifts, but the same spirit and different kind of works and certain kind of miracles and list all those three. And then it kind of sums it up and says, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one individually. It's personal now for the profit of all. So what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? That's how the Holy Spirit reveals himself. That's how the Holy Spirit makes himself visible or observable in the world today. That's, how, that's the expression of the Holy Spirit. The manifestation of the spiritual gifts that you and I have that he expects us to exercise is the expression of the Holy Spirit that was given to each one of us, not for our own self-glorification, 
which is what happens in the church today, but for the benefit of everyone, the word all there means saved and lost. Everyone. It just, it just changed me. But this is the biggest one of all. And this is the one that you and I are going to focus on for the next couple weeks. So you have to get a grasp on this. And it's when Jesus Christ writes epistles to us. When he lays out for us the report card to his church. And when you look at this, I mean, don't necessarily think of the, the Western church or this particular church or the denominational church or the Catholic church or whatever. Think of you because you're a member of his church. In Revelation 2 and 3, he lays those out for us. And, 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 and once you understand what these letters actually are, or when you understand that, it, it, it changes the power of those letters. You know, we have no problem understanding how God spoke to us through the Gospels and Acts. I mean, these are the Christian epistles. They're the Christian letters given to us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Got that? That's the the four Gospels talking about Jesus Christ. And, of course, Acts, which talks about the the birth of the early church and how it ministered and how it moved out and how the Holy Spirit dealt with them. And and we study those and we break those down and we just devour those because those those are important. That tells us who Jesus is. And then, of course, we've got Paul's epistles, you know, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and all those kind of, kind of ones in his letters to Thessalonica and his letters to uh, Timothy and Titus and people of that nature. And we study those Romans, and, and I even throw Hebrews in here to, to, to see how the doctrine works out, and, and we devour those. And none of us have any problem at all understanding the power and the purpose behind these epistles written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for our benefit. And then, of course, you've got these general epistles. You've got letters written by uh, Peter. You've got letters written by John. You've got a letter from Jude. You've got, you know, the Hebrews, which is, it doesn't really have a name to it. And, and we study those, and, and we put them on the same value, the same playing field with, with the book of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. And we forget that instead of using a man to write his letters to inspiration, the Lord himself gave us letters. He gave us epistles. He laid out for us in his words messages for his church, messages for you and I. But we don't take, we don't elevate these to the same stature as we do the other ones. Oh, because they're in the Revelation. And then that's symbolic, and that's really confusing. And, and it kind of gives me a headache when I study it. And so I kind of would rather not deal with that. But once you do, and this is where we live. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where, it's, it's where everything changes. And in case you're interested, the seven epistles, he wrote one to the church at Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The ones in Sardis and the ones in Laodicea, probably next Sunday, you're going to find will have the most chilling and sobering effect on every one of you in here. And then he basically gives what's called a report card summary. And for each of these churches, he has certain things that he says about them that are good, and he has certain things that said says about them that are bad. Some churches have, most of the churches have something good and something bad. And we would do that with our, with our own kids. Or when, when, 
I found this out when I was working at the radio station that um, you get a performance evaluation. And so your supervisor uh, gives you a performance evaluation and then uh, she lists or he lists things that you really are good at and some things you need to improve on and they put it in your personnel file and then judge whether you're gonna get a raise or whatever it is a promotion based on that. Corporate America guys, you understand how that works. Well, it's really amazing. Um, I don't know, when I was working there, uh, my supervisor, in, in the way they did it at Columbia International University, it was a scale from one to five. That, uh, you know, you, you, between a four and a five was really great. If you got like below a four, you know, it was not so great. And, and so my supervisor, while I was working there, gave me a five, handed it in, and the university kicked it back. You can't have a five. Why, why can't you have a five? Well, because there has to be something wrong. There has to be some area for improvement. You can't have a five. And so we had to go through and mark it down to a 4.8 just in order to get it to pass. You know, because most of us live in the world that when we sit down in front of a boss or something, they're going to first tell us the stuff they appreciate and then the bad news. Hey, I want you to know, I just really love working with you. You're fantastic. I mean, you, you get along with everybody so great and you, you always go the extra mile and a big smile on your face. It's just, it's just been a blessing to work with you because you know the hammer's going to drop. And then it's like, however, or the big but, you know, and then, then we hit it. But it's not that way with God's churches, because with most of the churches, there's something good and bad. With two of the churches, he has nothing bad to say about. Nothing. Wow. I mean, they got a five. And what are those churches like? What are the people like that live in those churches? I mean, what characteristics do they have that, that maybe I don't have? How can I be like those churches? There are two churches that he said nothing good about. Nothing. Not even, hey, I'm glad to have you in the family. Nothing. Everything he said about him was terrible. Even to the point, and you know this, the church in Laodicea, he said, you guys make me so sick. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. It says nothing good about those. But what do I fit in? And as we go through these, you're going to find the areas that, that Christ says this is good, and we need to emulate that with our lives, and areas that he says that, that is bad, and we need to jettison that stuff. Where does it fit in? Well, what about God's summary? Well, I want you to know that um, the way we do things here is not happenstance. In other words, it has been thought out and it's based on an agenda, and it's based on a purpose. Um, um, if you get the impression that, hey, you just come to church, and we're kind of slopping things together, and hey, you know, it's just really great, and we kind of, you know, and, and if we kind of do that, which is okay, you know, for our corporate time together. But there's a, there's a plan behind this. There's a, there's a motivation behind everything that we do here. And the motivation for everything that we do is to prepare you for post-Christian America. It is to prepare you for times that are coming. It is, it is to try to wean you away from the bad things that we find on this chart and to focus on the things that Christ honors. And you, and you may not even be aware of that. And so I want to I take a moment and just... And just kind of open up the playbook and kind of let you know from my heart why we do what we do. I mean, why do we meet in a barn? I want you to think it through. This is, um, this is my barn. Uh, prior to this, we met in Vic's barn. 
Prior to that, we rented a Seventh-day Adventist church, which was painful. You know, it wasn't, it, I mean, it didn't charge us much. It was just, it was, it never felt right. Never felt right. And because when we first started this church, the, the first concern, everybody, we have to have a building. Why? Because everybody has to have a building. Because if you don't have a building, you're not a real church. No, we're kind of a cell-based church. Well, that's just kind of a cult thing, you know. And so you, you have to have a building because every church has a building. Every church today, they rent a school or, or, or something of that nature. In Gaston County, you, you can't enter into a long-term relationship with the school system here. They do it on a three-week rotating basis. And it became, it didn't work. And so we need to find a place to meet and and every other church has a building, and, but they didn't have buildings in the book of Acts. And they didn't have buildings until after Constantine issued the Edict of Milan and the Edict of Toleration, and they turned pagan temples into Christian churches and pagan priests into Christian priests. And then all of a sudden now, all our identity became focused on a building. A building. I was talking to Shannon Weidenbitter, uh, Stefan's mom, and she was really struggling. And uh, she was going through a really dark time. And uh, you know, her, she's, just, she's had a really rough road with cancer. You know that. And her cancer's in remission right now. But she was really struggling. And she says, I have no support system. Well, why not? She goes, well, we moved from the church we're at. And we're trying to find another church. And we lost all of our friends. Well, how did you lose all of your friends? I don't know. Well, I, I know exactly why you lost all of those friends, because all of those friends' relationship were forged in an independent building, uh, a third entity building, that you came to some sort of building that was your church, but it's not your church. It's, it's a building. You came to a building, and you had fellowship in the building, and you had made relationships in the building, and you grew in the building, and if you move yourself from the building, all the people in the building go, I don't, I don't know how to relate to you. I don't know, what are we supposed to do? Had dinner together? We never did that before. We always had fellowship meals together at the building. And it's, it's that way everywhere. And then all of a sudden, you've got churches that are all about the building. They're all about the brand. And the, the big movement today is megachurches. Why? What pastor can minister to a megachurch? The reality, we're going to talk about this in a minute, the reality is that no pastor can minister to more than about 150 people, maybe 175 people, period. It cannot be done. So we'll farm it out. Well, to who? To who? People that aren't really the pastor? People that is our pastor of counseling, so he's the professional that we hire. Well, why don't you just encourage those people to go to another church that's a small church and let them have their own pastor that they can really relate to and, and you can minister to your flock and they can minister? no. Because the corporate dream in church is to grow bigger and can't do that. We've got to get all the people to come in to pay for the facilities. And You understand? It's the, way, it's the way church is today. We meet in a barn. We meet in a barn because it protects us. This is my barn. This is not, a, this is not a, an entity out there that, that I have to get government approval for to be able to use for a church based on zoning laws. The fact of the matter is, I have a right to do anything I want in my home. And so, therefore, we meet in a barn. That's why we met in, in Vic's barn. You know, and it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that, you know, we couldn't go get a building somewhere else. 
But we do this to be able to protect us if all of a sudden churches become closed down and and terrible things begin to happen because of just the prevailing winds of living in a post-Christian America. We focus on family. Why are we family integrated? Is it because we don't have room for a nursery? No, we can have a nursery in my living room. I mean, we could work all that kind of stuff. We could pull a trailer up here, put an air conditioning unit, run some power to it. We could have a nursery there. It's not about logistics. It's about what church is supposed to mean. Church isn't something that's subdivided out for professionals to come in and I'll deal with your kids till sixth grade. And another professional will come in and I'll deal with them to, to high school. And then all of a sudden when, they, uh, when they're in high school and there's nobody to deal with them anymore, they don't want to come in here where you are because your entire life with them, they've never seen you worship. They've never seen you pray. They never sat next to you and looked at you as a spiritual authority because it becomes kind of a spectator sport. So we focus on on families in here, and it's, it's difficult. I applaud you people that had the kids back there, and I applaud you for the disruptions that happened. We've had people that have come to this church and decided to leave because they didn't like sitting with their kids. I got that. I got that. No, no shame. Find a church that you don't have to sit with your kids. But we're doing this by design to, to foster a family because church is not just a, a club it's to be a family. That's, that's why, we, that's why we, we, we try to meet in homes during the week. You know, we, for a long time, we met at my home, and then we met at Vic's home. And even though we meet here on Tuesday night, this is still a home, is it not? And, uh, you know, with the, uh, with the Lindsay, with the group met here, and, you know, the youth group, the uh, ladies get together on Saturday, and they pray, and they meet in someone's home. And we, we try to, to foster that out so that we can kind of get to know each other better and, and become a family. That's why we do something as weird as take vacations together. Why not? We're family. We're supposed to be a family. Well, I don't like to take vacations with strangers. We're going to have a tough time in heaven, dude. You know, I mean, what we need to do is just expand our little my four, no more, shut the door kind of thing. I just want to have my own family. You've got all the time of the year to have your family together. Why don't you take three days of the year and expand that and spend time vacation with other people? Because that's what we try to do. Take vacations together and, and spend time together because you want to you get to know Tim? Hang with him at the beach in a Speedo. <laughs> No, I'm just, just, please, the Holy Spirit just left. I should have said that. Anyway. I mean, that's what, that's, what we're, that's what we're supposed to do. Well, I just want to have my family together. You're missing the joy of church. You're missing it. You can still have your family together on another vacation, but what's wrong with logging out three days and come spend some time together? You may find this one, you may find this one counterproductive. But we are intentionally staying small. Do you see any advertising for our church? You see a sign out front? I mean, we don't. We don't. We have a cross. Everybody around here knows what the cross is. People who come to our church, they come to our church because obviously God's leading them here. But our job is not to have seven services. I mean, if, if we got to the fact, the point that this building could not contain all the people that were here, then we'll start another church. And Scott will raise up one of you to be the pastor out there. It's not like I have to pastor everything where, you know, I'll pastor over here. Or better, we'll have satellite campuses where everybody can sit in a room and watch me on television. I mean, come on. 
How arrogant is that? But that's how church is done today. You know, and I, you can watch me on television, but I don't even know who you are. And you don't know who I am. How am I supposed to minister to you? How are we supposed to minister to each other? I mean, that, that's why we do this. And I would like our church to be bigger than it is, but I have no desires or dreams to be pastor of Hickory Grove. You know what I mean? How many ministries does your church have, Steve? None. None. Not one. Well, what kind of church is that that doesn't have any ministry? Oh, oh, oh we have a lot of ministry goes on, but we don't have a ministry. Ministry is empowered in you. It's in you. Our job is to, is to equip you for ministry. And when God leads you into a ministry, we rally around. We support you in your ministry. Therefore, it's not just the elders get together and say, you know, let's come up with three ministries this year. Okay, we'll feed the poor at the Salvation Army on Thursday. We'll, I don't know, move old ladies into the nursing home on Fridays. We'll do something else on Saturday. Mow people's lawns on Saturday. That's great. It's three ministries. Now, it's my job to convince you to get involved. Yeah, there's nothing vested in this. It's kind of a guilt thing. Come on, I need everybody to get involved in our ministry because we came up with this. It doesn't work that way. You come up with this. Hey, I, um, I really feel led to, um, to start a, 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 just a prayer meeting in my house with some of the ladies. Praise God. You know, I can't come because I'm not a lady, but man, I'll promote it and I'll pray for you and we'll talk about that and things happen. You know what I mean? And so instead of just the church having one ministry or two ministries or three ministries, Every one of us in here should be involved in some sort of ministry. I mean, that's how it expands. That's, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. We've worked really hard to train men to be spiritual leaders. We have the youth group. I teach for a little while. Then I teach them how to teach, and then I pitch it to them. It's your job. It's your job. And some of the, some of the guys don't feel comfortable with that. I got that. But a few of them raised up to the top, and, and that's great. We're, we're training spiritual leaders. We're trying to do that on Wednesday with all the men, and I'm going to be teaching for a while, and then we're going to teach you how to teach, and then I'm pitching it to you. And usually when that happens, the crowd thins out a little bit, but uh, it, it's what it means to be a follower of Christ, to, to be able to take his word and handle it and be a spiritual leader. That's what we want to focus on. That's what we're doing for the men. You should come. You should come. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Yes. Yes. But that's life. You know, it's, we're learning something new. Eventually, maybe you'll be teaching men at your workplace, or you'll be teaching your own families. That's why we have women's retreats. You know, oh my gosh, I have to leave my home and my family, my kids, all the stuff I've got to do with my family. Oh my God, i got to go for like three days at the beach. How terrible is that? And hang with a bunch of ladies. When we used to be able to do this at Pigeon Forge each year uh, with the youth, it was incredible. It was incredible. If you were a young person and didn't go, when they all came back, you felt like an outsider. You felt ostracized. And nothing happened other than the fact that, that those that went shared an experience. They shared a, a unity. And even when, even when we would go on these youth retreats, but I didn't teach. It's divided up among the guys. The girls handled the, the ladies handled the food and, and uh, did all the music, uh, some of the music. And, and we had guys that were doing the teaching because we're trying to train each of us to be the kind of godly men and women who can lead their families in post-Christian America.
Before I take a look at these scriptures, I want to share one last thing with you. There's a book that was recently published. An article came out about it, and I read I told Karen about it today. And uh, it's a kind of article that um, well, may offend some of you, but it won't as time passes by and you see the, the truth of it. And it basically says that living in post-Christian America, it's what we live in right now, it's going to get worse. Living in post-Christian America, that we need to alter the way we train our children. Like, for example, we've always trained our kids that they can do anything they want to do. You want to be a lawyer, be a lawyer. You want to be a doctor, be a doctor. You know, you want to be an auto mechanic, be an auto mechanic. You do anything that you want to do. That's rapidly changing because those professions that require governmental certification or governmental sanctions or stuff of that nature are slowly being closed to Christians. That you will have to compromise your belief and you will have to compromise your, uh, your faith to be able to teach in those. Um, small example, and you can go on online and you can read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of this. And uh, news media hasn't really picked up on it because it doesn't serve an agenda. But, uh, you know, a lady is getting ready to receive her Ph.D. in clinical counseling. And she is unable to receive certification unless she agrees that uh, transgenderism and homosexuality is not an inherent kind of mental illness that it was 15, 18 years ago, but is now just a standard part of life. And because she says, no, I, I don't see it that way at all, you are denied certification. Uh, attorneys uh, have been denied positions, and I won't, I won't go into it. It's going to get increasingly worse. I mean, even professions right now, like being a baker or a florist or a wedding photographer, that don't know how the Supreme Court's going to rule on that, but even if they do, it doesn't mean you're not going to get sued, that if you have a conviction that I don't want to actively participate as a, um, in a homosexual wedding or something of that nature, that uh, man, they're getting sued. Fine hundreds of thousands of dollars by an overbearing, oppressive government in a post-Christian America. I've had people ask me, you know, what you really ought to do is set this building at the Shepherding Center, set it up so that you'll do weddings here. Never. Never. No, it's my house. And it's my house and it's my yard. And so therefore I have a right, since it's my house and my yard, to be able to choose what friends of mine I want to allow to have a wedding. You understand the distinction? It's a huge distinction. This is the world in which we live. And the reality is that it's not going to get better. Jesus promises us it's going to get worse. And how we stand up to that and how we live towards that and, and how he sees us in these report cards and these letters will make a profound impact in your life. The found in the book of Revelation. You'll turn to it. Revelation, of course, is the only book that promises the special blessings to those who read it. One of the confusing things about the book of Revelation, the reason why people don't like reading it is because they don't know their Old Testament. Because in the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there's over 800 allusions from the Old Testament. That's two allusions per verse. I mean, it's, it's almost like an Old Testament book. It's a question we're going to start out with. is the fact to whom was the book written, and of course, why was it written? Why is it even put in the Scripture? And you find that in Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2. And I want you to really grasp this before we go any further. 
This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is his revelation. It's not revelations with an S. It's a singular, single revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave to him. The Father says, I'm going to present my son with a revelation. And the purpose of that is for him to show us, his servants, which things, which show us what things which must shortly take place. The whole purpose of the book of Revelation in the first sentence is for him to show us, the, ch- the church, things that are about to transpire. And so he said, he, he sent and signified it. In other words, he, he basically made it known to us by rendering into signs. He signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. This is a revelation given by God to his son to reveal to us the things that will take place in the future. Verse 3, and here's the blessing. Only book that has this special blessing. It says, blessed is he who reads. Okay. Blessed is he who reads. I'll sit down and read the book. I can read it in about two hours. So, no, no, it's, it's more than that. Who reads, enter those who hear the words of his prophecy. So you're getting a blessing because I want to be reading to you the words of his prophecy. But the key to it is, and to keep those things that are written in. Why is it even important to us? Because in verse 3, in the second sentence of this revelation, he lets us know that the time is near. The time of the fulfillment is near. The time of his return is near. It's a unique promise given to us today, but only for not for just reading and hearing, but also for those who obey the words of this book. The outline is pretty simple. We find that in verse number 19, that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Lord tells John to write the things, one, which you have seen, that's the first outline, and two, the things which are, and the third outline is the things which will take place after this or after these things. The things which you have seen is chapter one. That's John's vision. Write about the vision that you saw. And I won't go into this, but you can read chapter one. And John gets a vision of Christ and he sees Christ among the seven lampstands. He tells us in verse 20 what those lampstands mean. He describes who Christ is with this this. Verse 13, he's clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were like were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. And it's just it's a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. So the first thing I want you to do, John, is I want you to tell people what you saw. Okay. The second thing is I want you to talk about the things which are. That's the current events that are going on. And That's Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. And then the rest of the book talks about the things that will take place after these things, after the church is taken away, after all that changes. We're going to focus on the things which are, the seven letters to the seven churches, because for the Christian, and hear me out, for the Christian, this is the most important part of this book. From chapter 4 on, we're not going to even be here when that happens. It's going to give us a great picture of the things to come and of who Christ is, and we can learn a lot about that. But during chapter 2 and 3, that applies to us. 
That's me and that's you. And Jesus has written a handwritten, dictated letter in red ink to you and I. Seven letters to his seven churches. Question is always, how do they apply to us today? And there's four basic applications. The first is the fact these letters actually dealt with local churches at that time that were struggling with certain areas. That's why that letter went to Ephesus and Pergamos and Thyatira and Laodicea. Those are real churches during the time John was in exile writing this, uh, this book. It also is letters to all the churches. That's why at the end of each of these letters, he says, he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to the church, but to the churches. So, Individual churches go through what's going on here. And this, it, it's personal because God can speak to you specifically about things in your life through these letters. But the most powerful aspect of this is the prophetic that these letters, and un, except for the Daniel 9 70th week prophecy, which was so powerful, other than that, these words are the most exacting picture of church history in advance given anywhere, anywhere. They tell us about the times in which we live, that what's Christ pleased with and what he's not pleased with. And if these letters were written in any other order, it would not fit. From the birth of the church on Pentecost to the rapture of the church somewhere, maybe tomorrow, maybe today, maybe down the road a bit, All of church history is laid out in these seven letters. Certain eras of church history and periods of church history that the Lord identifies in his description of himself or what he commends them for or what he condemns them for. The promises at the end and there's a, it'll change your life if you see yourself in these letters. The design is simple. Each of these letters begins with the name of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Got that. Then there's a title of Christ. And and we're not going to break down all of these. That's not the point of what I want to show you tonight and next week, or today and next week. But basically, there's a title of Christ, which is the second second phrase, for example, in um, chapter 2, verse 1. These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. And so Christ reveals a certain aspect of himself in each of these letters, and it's all different. Then there's the good news. He always begins with the good news like any boss does. Then there's the bad news. Then after that, there's an exhortation. What you need to do to fix what's bad or to amplify what's good Then after that, you have a praise to the overcomer or a promise to the overcomer. To he who overcomes, I will do this. And then every letter ends with a closing. And the closing is this cryptic closing that Jesus always used, even in the Gospels, where I'm telling you something profound that's not for everybody. He that has an ear, let him hear. He says that seven times in in his Gospel accounts. And they're after this incredible teaching. What? No, no. He that has an ear, let him hear. And all of a sudden you begin to understand exactly what it is because it's meant just for you. Here at the end of these, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. The amazing part of this is the first couple of these, you have it reversed. 
And you actually had the the promise after the closing. In other words, it he ends the letter by saying, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear, or ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then the promise of the overcomer, but in the latter four churches that deal with us, it's reversed the way it should be. And there's a reason for that. And when you find that out, it's, it's incredible. Let's just, let's just look at Ephesus today. Far less than I had planned to do. Let me show you how this works. The word means desired one or darling. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. To the angel of the church of my desired one or my darling, write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And that, that refers back to what he talks about in chapter one. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So we've got the name and then we've got the description of Christ. And then the good news. Here's the good news. Here's what I want to say good about the apostolic church. This is the first church. This is the church that had people in it that actually knew Christ or people who knew people who had firsthand knowledge of Christ. We don't have those people today. It's been 2,000 years. That's what he says. I know your works. Well, you don't, do you know mine, Lord? Yeah, but I know their works and your labor, your patience, and I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. Wow. Okay. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them as liars. It's a discerning church. And you have persevered and you've had patience even during tough times and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Sounds like the church today, doesn't it? And then the bad news. In, this, in the midst of all of that, the bad news is, nevertheless, I have this against you. What, Lord, you have something against your church? You have something against me? Yes, that you have left your first love. What does that mean? I've left my first love. I mean, even then, the church was struggling. What it means is you value doctrine over devotion. And don't get me wrong. I'm a big doctrinal guy. I want to make sure it's right. And I want to make sure it's true. And it's far easier for me to study Scripture and, and understand exactly what it says than to lay myself in open adoration to the one who gave that Scripture. It's so easy to argue about doctrine, to fight about doctrine, and you believe this, and I believe this, and let me show you where you're wrong, and you show me where you think I'm wrong, and we kind of argue about them. That's what the church does today. That's what pastors do. That's what they were doing. That's not, that's not what Christ called us to do. Yes, He is truth, and He wants us to get it right, but, but not at the extent of Him. Or this. This is the mainstay of traditional church. They were too busy on the business of the Lord to be about the Lord. Why don't we have a Sunday evening worship service? Why don't we have a Christmas cantata? Our first year here, our first Christmas, Doit came up to me and said, hey, I really miss having a cantata. He says, do you think Karen can pull one together for us? And I looked at him and I said, no. 
No. I said, there are 150 churches having cantatas. Go grab one. One of the reasons why we don't have a Sunday evening worship service is because church will wear you out. Wear you out. I mean, I'm on this committee and that committee. I have a deacon's meeting and, and then we have the finance committee. Oh, then we have training union. Oh, we have a youth workers meeting. And then we have this meeting and this meeting, 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 meeting of, of feeding this, this entity, feeding this, this thing that does good stuff. But I'm doing it at the expense of my primary ministry is to be a spiritual leader to my family, be there for my kids. And we, don't, we don't do that. We encourage Encourage you to have from day one. I mean, go home, spend some time with your family, have dinner together, love on your kids, teach them the word of God. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that much because the men feel uncomfortable teaching the word of God. So we have classes to try to train, train them to teach the word of God, and we're hoping it gets better. You have left your first love. You ever been there? Do you remember when you got saved? Remember what it was like? I'm going to attack the gates of hell with a water pistol. I can do anything for Christ. And then all of a sudden you catch persecution. Your wife or your husband doesn't like your devotion to Christ because it makes them feel uncomfortable in their apathy. And so they make a statement that's the most hurtful thing a spouse can say to another spouse. And they say this. I've seen this happen all the time. You know, I liked you better before you got real fired up about Jesus. Why can't you become just like we were before. It's pressure, isn't it? It's terrible. Left your first love. Somebody has a renewal in their heart and they just want to praise God and they want to pray and they want to bring new people to church and they're, they're out just passing out tracks when you're going out to dinner with them, embarrassing you. Used to not embarrass you. Used to be right there with them, but somehow we became civilized. Somehow we, we lost it. Somehow it became more of a spectator sport. Somehow we just fell back into our, our just mundane existence. And Jesus says, I have that against you. It irritates me. You've hurt me. The exhortation. How do we fix it? You need to remember what it was like in the beginning. You need to remember from where you have fallen. I ask you, all the time, on a scale from 1 to 10, where are you spiritually? And the, the standard politically correct remark is somewhere between a 7 and an 8. If you say 9, then I'm going to assume it's close to a 10, and I'm going to ask you to do something, so we don't want to be a 9. We'll go back to, to be a 7 or 8. If somebody is arrogant enough to actually say they're a 10, it means they really are. They really are. And, I, and I'm always surprised, even in my own life, I'm always surprised you know, scale from 1 to 10, Steve, where are you at? Oh, about an 8. Well, you need to remember the heights from which you've fallen. I don't want to hear that. That's the truth. You've left your first love. So, so where are you at right now? Uh, how many people in here are fives? People usually say fives because we, we pray for them. You know, or seven or eight, most of the hands go up. And well, we need to remember the heights in which we fall. And I haven't really pressed that issue because it makes people feel uncomfortable. But what the Scripture teaches what is the solution for this? You remember from where you've fallen, but you don't understand. It's so busy. I've got so much work to do. Would you think he cares? I mean, is that an excuse? Just tell him, God, I'm, um, I've got so much responsibility at work that I don't have time for you. Will you take some of that responsibility away? Sure, I'll demote you. 
Oh, don't do that. Well, then you can have both ways. Repent and do the first works. Or else, well, that, that, that sounds like something I would tell my kids. Look, look, here's what you need to do, and you need to do it now, and if you don't, consequences. Or else, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its, from its place unless you repent. Well, what does that mean? What's a lampstand? A lampstand is not the bearer of light. I mean, I mean, it's not light itself. It is the bearer of light. Lampstand is usually filled with oil, which is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. If you don't repent, and I'm going to take your influence away. I'm not going to let your light shine. You know, you still have my spirit, and you're still saved, but you're going to find that your life is going to be less reflective of me. And I promise you, if that happens to you, it is a terrible place to be. And then he says this, throws this caveat in, this good news part two. He says, but you do have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, who in the world are these guys? It was a, a sect during the first part of the first century of the church who basically demanded a split between the clergy and the laity. In other words, the, the clergy is separate from the rest of the people. We're not a one family anymore. We're clergy and laity. We're hired holy men and people who don't have to really do much. Or we're people who, who impress authority over us. Or, or, and there was, there was a division here to exalt one part of the family over the other party. You will find as you go through these letters over and over again, the Lord says that's not what it's designed to be. You're not supposed to be there. You're supposed to be a family. Everybody's a family. Everybody has a part. Everybody has certain gifts. My gift is preaching and teaching. Therefore, I preach and teach. But that doesn't separate me from you. Why do I never... Have I ever asked you to call me Pastor McCraney or Reverend McCraney or Dr. McCraney? No. Do I have my name on the marquee? No. Do I dress different from you? Do I have the... You know, the pray, the, the, they call it a praying bench, but it's a wall. They're like that little gate they have in churches to keep you here and the elevated platform. We don't do that. I mean, have, I, have I ever shared with you the struggles that I have? Yes, I, I struggle just like you because we're part of the same family. You know, I can help you with the areas that I've gotten victory over and you can help me with the areas that you have because we're, we're moving forward, hopefully in unison as a family together. Jesus said that the church at that time hated the rise of this. You're going to find this creeping up. Because what was happening, church was beginning to be run more like a business than a family. Wow, boy, can I ever relate to that? Here's how Jesus says we're supposed to function to each other. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You ought to wash one another's feet. This is more than just the act of foot washing. It's, it's, the, it's the humility aspect of this. This is Christ Almighty doing something to them that they refused to do to him, and he even washed Judas's feet. Remember us talking about that? For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. I'm not greater than you. 
I mean, God didn't make me more special than you because I'm a pastor. I'm the pastor because he called me to do that. And he called some of you to do other things. And the fact is, we're, we're supposed to be growing together in the likeness of Christ. Now, I may have been at it longer than you, or I may, I may know the scripture more than you. That's great. And I'll help you with that. But that doesn't elevate us as our people better than anybody else. Like the churches that always have the parking spots right up front for the pastor. That's kind of, I could do that to kind of honor the pastor, but church is about honoring Christ. It's not about honoring a pastor. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then the closing here. And again, this is reversed. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, for the closing should be last, but in the first couple letters, and I'll tell you why probably next week, uh, he has it first. And it says, Who Hindu overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Again, note the, note the order here. And then the prophetic interpretation of this. This letter to this church of Ephesus represents the apostolic church. It's the only letter that talks about apostles. And it, 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 uh, it begins pretty much from the birth of the church and ends to when the letter was written. It was about the, the turn of the, uh, the first century. It runs from probably around AD 30 to AD 100. And if you will look at this and how it fits in, you'll see this is what the church was struggling at that time, struggling with at that time. It also shows us that the church fathers, and, and again, if you've not been involved in seminary and all that kind of stuff, you, you've not been involved in these debates. But, you know, the church fathers as authoritative figures, man, they were struggling themselves with, what, with the problems that they had. Our, our authoritative role model is not the Reformation or the Puritans or the church fathers or the apostolic church. It's the book of the Bible. It's the book of Acts. It's how it's interpreted through the book of Romans. It's the gospel accounts. But the report card. Lord said both good and bad things about the church at Ephesus. So we can put a check on the good and a check on the bad. And next week you're going to we'll talk about the church of Smyrna and hopefully Pergamos and see how we slowly start filling this up. Because what we need to do is start aligning our life as individuals and corporately as a church to what is good and start rejecting what is bad. But how do we respond to this? And I've just asked a couple questions. What are we doing? Or are we doing what the Lord praised the church at Ephesus about? Or are we doing what he didn't praise the church about? And do we really care? I mean, all of us are busy and all of us have our things to do. And, and again, we live in America, so church is kind of something that we do, not really who we are. And, and so, I mean, do we even care? And if we do care, what are we, literally you, me, what are we prepared to do about it? Watch this. We'll just close. I know your works, your deeds, your actions, the things you do that are spiritually energized. <clears throat> Can you list those in your own life? He says, I, I know those. And I know your labor. It's not just a work. It's, it's now it's striving. Now it's sweating. Now it's costing you something. And your patience. 
which means that the work of the fruit of your labor, you may not even be seeing now, but you're continually sowing anyway for the faith of Christ. And it's not like a microwave spirituality where I put something in for a minute and a half and it better come out cooked. You put something in and it may be years before you see any fruit. And I know that you cannot bear those who are evil in the church, outside the church. Do we stand against stuff like that? We've got evil encroaching in every area of our life, our families, our our institutions, America in general. And do we stand against that? Or do we argue about whether it's okay to watch a movie that only has three F words because that's not as bad as a movie that has 12? I mean, the holiness. I mean, look what they're doing here. And you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. Does the church do that today? Do they look at the doctrine and the teaching of a pastor? And do they say, no, I don't want anything to do with that? Or do they flock to some of these guys because they love the experience and the message that is preached about how you have the favor of God? Have you persevered, fought the good fight, and have you had patience? And have you labored for the Lord's sake and have not become weary? Or have we pretty much just thrown in the towel and said, you know, I'm, I was younger then. I had a whole lot more energy, but now, oh, we're just going to kind of let it go the way it goes. That's not what the Lord what the Lord commended this church for was something that we desperately need. Those people who are still in love with his first love function like this. Those of us who maybe have grown cold or stale or apathetic or are comfortable being a seven or eight or a six or a five, we don't want to do these kind of things because this demands a fervency that he will give you like this if you will ask him. Or is this us? Nevertheless, I have against you that you have left your first love. If my wife told me that, and I appreciate, Steve, that you've, um, you take care of me and you, you're always there for me and you're faithful to me and you, um, you know, you raised our kids well. And, and I, I appreciate about that. I really do. I appreciate your love and your toil and, you know, putting up with some of my idiosyncrasies and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. But, um, I don't feel that you love me like you did when we first got married. That's crushing, isn't it? I'm going through the motions and doing the things that I'm supposed to do. Yeah, but, but you're not doing it for me. Maybe you're doing it for you or collateral blessings that did you get. I, I feel like that you have left your first love. That's what the Lord is telling this church. What the Lord may be telling us in here. We have left our first love. What do we do about that? I can't fix it for you. Your spouse can't fix it for you. Only you can fix it for you. But there's a principle in Scripture that I live by, and it's the story of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, proud man, just arrogant man, and sitting out on a rooftop of, Babylon, and he's looking at it. He's praising himself for this great city that he's built. And Daniel's over there praying for him. And Daniel says, oh, Lord, maybe give him some time to maybe he'll repent of his arrogance. And it didn't happen. Months later, all of a sudden, the Lord struck him and humbled him. 
And you find out it says for seven seasons, which could mean seven years, they drove him out in the field like a wild animal. And he had an actual disease. They've actually documented this disease where, you know, his fingernails grew long and he liked to look like an animal and he ate grass. And I mean, he was crazy. He lost, he lost everything. Daniel kept praying for him. And one of the most encouraging passages to me, because I'm real bad on myself. In other words, God wants to forgive me far quicker than I want to forgive me. You understand what I'm saying? I'm my worst enemy. And so when I'm sitting out there like Nebuchadnezzar in a seven years figuring I need to go at least 15 before I feel comfortable enough to come back to God, Scripture says that when he came to himself, like this is stupid. This is crazy. I mean, this, this is no way for a king to live or a child of the king like we are. He simply looked up. That's it. He just acknowledged who he was and where he was and where his Help could come from, and God restored everything instantaneous. Oh, what what encouragement. If you have left your first love, if you've wandered away from him, if you've let, like I talked about in the parable of the sowers, the deceitfulness of wealth or the trials and tribulations of this life or just worries in general rob you of your fruitfulness, if you will just look up based on the authority of Scripture and my own experience, And God will restore. If you go an inch, he will go a mile. Because that's the kind of God we serve. The kind of God, like the father who runs off the front porch and embraces his prodigal son as his son was coming back to the father. Amen? Let me pray.